Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Smart People Should Build Things Venture for America podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Scheinwald. And today we have not one, but two entrepreneurs on the show, Ben Young and Frederick Kukulhaas. Ben and Frederick met and became roommates during their MBAs at the Yale School of Management, where they both recently graduated. And they have determinedly launched Hugo and Hobie, attempting to improve the furniture buying and the furniture utilization experience. Right now, there's a disposable furniture culture, and high-end furniture is maybe out of reach for some, and there's kind of little in between. Hugo and Hobie seeks to create modern, interesting, high-quality designs and manufacture them through a network of makers in the good old US of A. Classic entrepreneurs, Ben and Frederick, are constantly learning and iterating. They've bootstrapped and won business plan competitions to get to where they are. You can learn about them today on the show, but take a minute and go to Hugo and Hobie to see their latest collection and to see the quality of their ideas and the craftsmanship that goes into Hugo and Hobie products. And I, I think the prices are quite reasonable and that you get a lot more. I think their value proposition is really, really compelling. Check out the site. It, it, it really is um, very nicely done. And uh, our hats go off to Ben and Frederick. Before we launch into our interview with them, I should give you a quick indication of why we're here. Venture for America is a program that uh, I really believe in. It's a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and help revitalize America's cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city, city where they learn how to contribute to high-growth businesses. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, you can visit ventureforamerica.org. And hey, you might even you might even want to become a fellow. Check out ventureforamerica.org in order to learn more about the fellowship itself and when the application deadlines are. Tiny, tiny, tiny bit about me. I am 13 official years deep into my entrepreneurial career. I started the Mission Driven Group back in 2004. Um, check out our website, and you can find out more on my firms and me. And you can find me on Twitter, at Jeremy Scheinwald, or LinkedIn. I'm always happy to connect with entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs. And now, here is our interview with the minds behind Hugo and Hobie. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So guys, thanks, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for coming all the way in from New Haven today. Thanks so much for having us. Let's do a little personal background here. Ben, um, you know, you kind of took the, seemingly took the long route to entrepreneurship. You graduated from Swarthmore, joined Teach for America, became a math teacher, and I should note that you were an award-winning math teacher at that. A um, little bit of blush there. Uh, you went back to get your MBA. Is this like classic teacher burnout, or were you always intending to be an entrepreneur, and it was just something you wanted to do was to, to teach for a while? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, definitely not teacher burnout. Um, you know, I, jo- I joined Teach for America, and I thought, you know, I'd maybe do it for two years and kind of uh, go on from there and, and get back into something like entrepreneurship or work for a startup or a tech firm or, or something like that. And I, uh, yeah, I loved it. I, I fell in love with it and loved teaching for five years. And, and frankly, I was like very conflicted about um, even going back to business school. Um, but I, yeah, I kind of made that decision. And, and um, you know, when I was moving from uh, Philly to uh, Providence, Rhode Island, I, I actually, um, you know, I was looking for teaching jobs, but I also realized that, um, you know, if I didn't find one, my plan, my backup plan was to go start a business. So I was, I was kind of excited about the fact that, um, you know, even if I couldn't find a job, I was, I was going to go do that. Um, but yeah, I applied to business school and my pitch was sort of to, to schools was sort of, um, I've been an educator for five years. Um, I want to go do a startup in education. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity there. And I, I started a, com- a furniture company instead, which is a, a little twist there. But um, but yeah, I've always been interested in, in entrepreneurship. So yeah, it's kind of that fire um, under me. It, educating furniture consumers. That, that's, <laughs> exactly. That, that's been. Exactly. Um, and Fred, you know, and you head off to business school and I, you know, I know a little bit of the, about the, uh, the business school world from my, my, my own company. Um, consulting firm, you know, you're an ex-consultant, you had seven years, I think, in, at Accenture and Booz. Yeah, um, seven, eight. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, longstanding, reliable consultant. And the consulting firms start chasing MBAs as soon as they arrive on campus. Did you have to be, like, disciplined about... Did you come in like with a focus saying, like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I'm going to ignore those consulting firms? Did you have to be disciplined about keeping them you know, uh, out of your business, so to speak? Yeah, for me, it was, um, it was, it was actually not too difficult to ignore them. Um, or not even ignore them, but like really kind of stay true to the path. Because I knew uh, when I just trying to decide between schools that this is really what I wanted to get into. Um, I felt like eight years in consulting was plenty of time to kind of know what the industry is about. Uh, it's a wonderful one that uh, you work with really, you know, you can work with really smart people, great clients, and learn a ton. Uh, but it, for me, you know, it was I, I want to do something for my for myself on my own now. Um, and I, I knew that coming into school. And so um, you're absolutely right that the the firms, you know, a lot of them finance, a lot of them consulting for some of these MBA programs are very aggressive recruiting. I mean, like, you're there a couple weeks in your MBA program, and they're already like recruiting and trying to attract you know talent. And I guess it makes sense, but the flip side of that is that um, it sucks a lot of the oxygen, I think, out of the room sure. of, of yeah. students that would potentially be maybe interested in entrepreneurship. And so I think for the recruiting offices of of MBA programs, something they should be thinking about, which is you know obviously we want you know top companies to come and recruit, but we also want to give students the ability to like really think about, you know, it's two years of precious time or even 18 months if you're doing an accelerated program of precious time to think about, like, what do I actually want to do? And is it jumping into a, you know, a top firm? Is it is it really doing something of my own? And so um, I had a very clear idea. Um, I think Ben did too, to a large extent. Um, yeah, and I would recommend to anybody who is going into a program to really, it's, it's super exciting in the beginning and you want to mix it up with them, but just really take a moment to think about what you want to do first. For sure. Yeah, I mean, this is... You know, not to talk too much about me, but this is our, you know, my business is, is you know, we've been helping people get into business school for uh, 13 years and thousands of people. And that's like one of the things that when people talk about entrepreneurship, I'm like, it's very easy to fall off that path. Mm-hmm. And you have to go in and be incredibly disciplined yeah. about it every day. Um, so I'm glad that you guys have been disciplined. Um, so, you know, a lot of businesses are, are born out of pain points. Um, you guys, um, you guys become become roommates. That's not the pain point, uh, <laughs> as far as I know. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
What was the problem that you guys experienced uh, experienced as roommates that led to Hugo and Hobie? Yeah, sure. Um, so Fred and I actually met each other at uh, you know one of these welcome weekend events um, at Yale that they were having, and uh, found out that we were both from DC and and kind of connected over that and said, hey, you know, why, why don't we become roommates and. Um, you know, we had moved many times uh, before in our professional careers and, you know, we're moving again and moving into our new place in, in New Haven and, and pretty much immediately uh, started commiserating over the pain points of buying furniture. Um, not only was it not fun this time, but it hasn't been fun ever. Um, we're basically stuck with, with bad options. Um, on the one hand, there's kind of, you know, cheap throwaway furniture. You buy it, um, it lasts for a couple of years and, you know, you have a huge headache as you're putting it together. And then, you know, it ends up on the curb a lot of times. Um, and then on the other hand, you start looking at, you know, kind of higher end pieces and uh, you realize you can't afford any of them because all of a sudden it gets extremely expensive. Um, so, so you're kind of stuck in this bad place where um, you can't buy the furniture you actually want. So you buy other furniture. Um, and, and, you know, I always describe this kind of there's this moment at the end and beginning of months where it looks like kind of doomsday going on where there's kind of, you know, three legged pieces of furniture on the curb everywhere. Um, <laughs> people and, are moving out and moving in. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's just this moment of, um, you, you, you know, you realize the problem right away. Um, so Fred and I just yeah, we started building furniture. You know, Fred, Fred started building a, uh, a desk actually to start. Um, and uh, found out that we both built furniture as a hobby, um, and kind of connected over that. And and we're you know we're both talking about the pain point, but also looking at the furniture that that we were both building, and, and sort of saying, why isn't a company building a furniture like this? You know, made out of wood, made out of steel, uh, built to last, easy to assemble. Um, and and we were looking at our pieces and saying, hey, we could put this in the mail, we could ship this. Um, this would be way better than the options that are out there. Um, and I think we might be onto something here. And so, you know, as two people interested in entrepreneurship, we kind of we kind of went from there. Yeah. If I could, the only thing I'd add to that is it started super slowly, where we were in the kind of classic sense trying to solve our own problem, um, to the point where we were like, well, I'm just going to like build a desk this weekend, and you know, then Ben did, and as we did that, and we would have people over as you do, and you know, you're you're having social things in in the beginning of these programs where people are coming over, you're going to their places, etc. People would come and be like, that's great, where'd you get it? Um, and when we told people we were building, you know, we like build our own furniture, they they got excited by that, and so that's really where the idea started of um, commiserating with some of our classmates as well as like they have the same problems, and so it started very organically we weren't looking to start you know a furniture company and, and that's kind of how it happened I, I think I could have used you guys when I was at business school because <laughs> I, I I just flat out refused to furniture my place <laughs> right. my place I, I, just, I just wouldn't do it I, I just had a bed and yeah. some shelves I like, right. I'm like I'm not gonna buy a bunch of stuff I'm gonna throw out which yeah, is totally you know it was it compl- probably a little irrational but uh, it, was, <laughs> it was a short period of time I was like I'm just not doing it so okay so you're, you're, you're talking about the the how the whole thing kind of happens organically so this isn't you know Frederick, the management consultant, and 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 Ben, the mathematician, kind of you know crunching numbers and figuring out the way this is this is going to go. I mean, how how do you get to the point where you're like, okay, you know, this has evolved to the point where maybe this is a real opportunity, and, and let's do it. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, it really started as um, almost like a thought experiment, which was you know you're you're new to business school, you're learning you know all these things about competitive strategy and market forces and economics and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so you start thinking about it in the context of, of a problem that you're excited to solve. In this case, it was like, well, let's think about the furniture industry. Um, and so, again, it really started slowly where at first, you know, Ben and I were too busy, to be honest with, with you, with cla- you know, with classes and just the regular um, every day of, of being in prog- the program. 
Um, but we would be thinking about it, you know, during those classes and occasionally would talk about it. And then it kind of went from there where, you know, all of a sudden we'd start to do a little bit of research on the side. Um, and again, slowly but steadily, all of a sudden we were putting in a couple hours each day to be like, I wonder about this and maybe we should talk to other people and potential customers. And so that really uh, just kept going throughout the two years of the program until, you know, at a certain point we are um, building a first collection. We are applying to business competitions. Um, we're having, you know, we're finding ourselves in between classes at lumber mills to try to understand the lumber industry in New England and, you know, talking to all sorts of manufacturers. Um, and it's crazy. It sounds crazy. It is completely crazy, but it's also was, you know, so much fun uh, and so interesting that it just kind of kept going um, until all of a sudden, and Ben, you can, you know, speak to this, but all of a sudden you're starting to get into more formal conversations of like, is this just like a fun project we're working on? Or is this like the potential mm -hmm. for an actual, you know, kind of business? So I, 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 I find that like when you're doing that, that kind of like one-to-one -one having conversations with people at lumber mills and stuff like that, like it's, you start to, the, the market starts to either sort of present itself to you or not, right? right. Like people are like, mm -hmm. well, this is a bad idea for a variety of reasons you probably didn't think about. And I have that experience probably once every two weeks where it takes me, like I have a great, what I think is a great idea and then I sober up like after talking to three people. <laughs> right. you know, I'm like, oh, that's why no one's doing this. <laughs> right. Um, so, I mean, what are you hearing? You know, you're like, you're, you're going to, to, to talk to talk to people, to stakeholders and people in the, in the value chain and all that type of stuff. I mean, what are people telling you that's so validating? I mean, I think one of them is that, um, yeah, this is actually a great opportunity and a, a you know, there's a lot of opportunity here to improve furniture making um, in the U.S. And so one of them is that uh, there actually are a lot of both lumber mills and very skilled craftspeople um, in the U.S. So a lot of these, um, a lot of jobs got kind of shipped overseas at one point in our country, but a lot of these, uh, the trade is, still exists there. And, you know, the, the factories are still there, the mills are still there, um, and, and really they're looking for business. It's a tough, it's a tough time period, but the capacity is there. And so one of the things we've learned is, you know, we have sustainable hardwoods here. We have crafters who are, who are able to build these pieces and we have customers who want those pieces and are just trying to get connected with these people to be able to, to have these products. So I think, um, it was very validating and it was also, um, a, a big learning curve. So, you, you know, I think the first time we walked into a lumber mill, um, we didn't even know what they were asking. Uh, I mean, <laughs> some of the lingo was just, you know, uh, we weren't used to it. And so, you know, we felt a little bit, uh, you know, dumb at the beginning, but, but also you start to learn it pretty quickly. Um, and so we just learned a lot about timber and the, the lumber industry and as well as, you know, what craftspeople struggle with and, and, and how we can be a vehicle to help them as well. And I think part of your story, when we mentioned you guys are, you guys are roommates, there are all sorts of risks when you start a business, uh, you know, financial risks and risks for your time, but also there's, in your case, there's roommate risk, right? You guys are, <laughs> you guys are living together. If this doesn't work out, it could be, could be a very tough year. What, uh, I mean, did you guys set any ground rules for how you were to get along in professionally and personally? Or was it like, you know, go, well, I'm sure it'll all work out. Yeah, that, that's a, an, an excellent question. Um, I think, uh, being roommates with, with, a with a founder, even a potential founder, um, if you're going about it the wrong way, uh, is fraught with danger because talk okay. about, you know, not being able to turn off at the end of the day or, or you know, um, potentially tense, you know, conversations or hard conversations that everybody's going to have to have if they, you know, go on kind of a startup or entrepreneurial journey. Um, with Ben and I, I think we had a couple things going in our favor. You know, the first being that again, kind of taking it slow in the beginning, um, 
you know, and really trying to organically investigate the idea and thinking of it more as a thought exercise um, didn't put too much pressure on us to do, you know, or even achieve anything immediately. It was really just, let's find out more about this. Um, so that kind of allowed us some space to, you know, get to know each other, um, but also like get to know the idea. Um, and is this something that we're actually like, are we just a little bit interested in this? Or are we like really interested enough in it to really make, you know, and is there something there to really make kind of a, a professional, you know, career commitment essentially? Um, so I think we had that going for us that it was a, it's just a really good environment for us in particular. Um, we also had a third roommate. We should give him a shout out because he's like the silent partner in uh, Hugo and Hobie, uh, Zan Donovan, um, who is, uh, is, it was never formally involved with the company, but um, was just like so great in so many ways and that he was a good sounding board. Uh, he was always super supportive. Um, you know, a lot of times when Ben and I, and, and even now when we disagree on things, you know, we go to him for advice. And so um, Zan is just a good example of, regardless of, of who you're starting a company with um, or what you're doing, if you're going to start, a, you know, a startup, um, you need to surround yourself with people who are, you know, objective, who have your back and are supportive. Um, and so for us, it was uh, by, by, by coincidence and by chance, um, kind of a perfect situation. Um, and it is difficult sometimes. I mean, Ben and I are, are really good friends. Obviously, we're, you know, super close as, as partners as well. But, um, you know, having two years as roommates, you really get to know the other person. Um, and so in some ways, if it doesn't work, it can not work um, spectacularly. Um, but if it does, you know, if it does work, you really get to know, can I trust this person? What kind of person are they? And, um, you know, I think for Ben and I, um, it's worked out really well. You guys both have new roommates. Uh, you guys are both uh, recently married guys, and um, you know I, I, I'm I'm curious as to whether you know you had conversations. I mean, we're talking about personal conversations about the risks of entrepreneurship. I'm curious if you had those conversations with your now wives. I mean, I, I'm I, from my own experience. I actually did sit down with my wife before we. I was like, just so you know, this is like a it's a risky. I'm like kind of a risky bet. Like, I'm, things seem stable. <laughs> But, you know, I'm, I don't know, I was, what, seven, eight years in or something like that. I'm like, things seem stable, but it could go the wrong way. And just so you know, you know, and she was, of course, very supportive. But I'm just curious if you guys, you know, put any ground ground rules in in, uh, in those relationships as well, or at least put gave some context to what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we definitely did have those conversations. And, and I think both Fred and I are, are just super fortunate to have um, ex- extremely supportive wives in this and, and kind of understanding uh, yeah, what it, what it's like to be an entrepreneur, and, and I think it's a I think it's a learning process too. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, my wife is in medicine, and you know, she's a, a resident now, and she works super long hours, and she she also knows what it's like to you know work for a long period of time towards a goal, um, and so I think that I think that helps uh, with it. Um, but at the same time, it's challenging, you know, especially you know uh, starting a company and you know saying you know I'm going to forego a, a nice offer from from you know a, a business recruiting at a, a at our school and. And I'm going to, uh, yeah, I'm going to go off and, and do this and not pay myself and, you know, kind of take the plunge is, is, uh, yeah, there's a lot of conversations around that, but I think it's exciting. And I think, um, one of the nice things of, of being in school is, uh, when our wives would visit us and be around, you know, I, I would always encourage my wife to come, come with us to, to hear other entrepreneurs speak, to just kind of, um, also appreciate the fact that even the successful entrepreneurs hearing their stories from the beginning, you oftentimes hear a very similar theme, which is mm-hmm. it's tough at the beginning. Um, and, and, you know, even when they take off, you know, the, the first few years are, are a grind for sure. So um, I think that was very helpful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, 
my wife still is part-time psychiatrist to me, and we're 13 years in, and we grow every year, and we've had a great run, and the stress never goes away. You know, right. it's, it's tough. Um, so you two are clearly not Hugo and Hobie. Um, what, uh, tell us about the name. How did you guys find the name, and, and what's it all about? Yeah, so I mean, uh, one of the things we learned when we were moving in and, and sort of building furniture together was, um, yeah, how did you, you know, where did you learn how to do this? Or like, does this run in your, your family? Or are you, you know, what's the deal? And so we found out that, um, yeah, our grandfathers uh, were both uh, designers and environmentalists and, and craftspeople themselves and, and furniture makers. Um, so Fred's grandfather, Hugo Kuchelhaus, uh, was a pretty renowned uh, German uh, designer, environmentalist, et cetera. Um, there's actually museums um, in Germany uh, dedicated to his work. Um, He started, um, he did a lot of things, uh, but he started really uh, first as a a master carpenter in Germany, um, which is a a long multi-year, you know, process of of formal education, almost like a doctorate, you know, carpentry. Um, And so, you know, Ben's grandfather, um, Hobart Young, Hobie for short, um, you know, had a a very successful second career, um, you know, as a carpenter in Ohio and retirement career. Um, but himself as well was like a, you know, an inventor, a tinkerer, um, just a, a man who was very curious about the world. And so um, both of these guys, I think what inspires us about them is um, their curiosity um, and their adherence to um, really the, the philosophy, which was it's not just important what you make, but how you make it. Um, and so we thought, you know, that's really a big part of what is driving what we're trying to do, which um, you can buy lots of inexpensive, you know, super convenient things, but they end up on the curve because they're made uh, very disposably. And so is there a better way to do that? Um, and can we be the ones to potentially to do that? And so that's really, um, you know, why we, we named it after them is, is kind of the, they were our, our inspiration. So, And, and also just, you know, ex- an example of that is, um, you know, my grandfather had never built furniture before and he, he was self-taught and, um, you know, when my parents got married, he uh, built he built them a, a bed, a four post bed um, that that's been around for uh, the last thirty years. You know, and so these were these were also individuals that were building pieces that were meant to be heirlooms. They're meant to last your entire life. And something happened in between um, when you know when Fred and I were growing up, where all of a sudden price was the only thing that mattered. Um, and so yeah, it's also a tribute to kind of coming back to to building pieces that are built to last and, and that you want to take with you that you're not going to put on the curb because this is the piece that um, when you're leaving business school or you're moving to a new job or moving to a new city, that's the thing that's going in the box and going in the U-Haul to to set it up again in your new home. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So you guys have got the name. You're starting to validate the idea. Everything's moving along. And you're in a great place to start a business. You're at business school. There's a, lot, you know, a good ecosystem for you. You guys have both um, you know, lauded the, uh, the, you know, the Yale Entrepreneurship Program. But you were initially rejected by Yale's Entrepreneurial Institute. What what didn't they see in in Hobie in Hugo and Hobie uh, to start, and and what did you know? What did you or they need to get right before they could they could see it? Yeah, that, that uh, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, and I I will say for you know from the beginning that um, that is one of many rejections that uh, Ben and I have gotten 
uh, you know, continue to get uh, when when we're um, you know pitching this idea or talking about it with um, you know uh, especially certain kinds of uh, probably professional institutional investors um, or people who are very familiar with um, you know kind of the entrepreneurial industry um, because what we are um, proposing to do is something that takes time. You know, it takes time to build a brand. It takes time to build. Um, you know, sophisticated supply chain um, and really nail all the components of that. Uh, and I think a lot of um, what uh, a lot of the people who are evaluating new startups have trained themselves to look for um, is, you know, uh, extreme and immediate growth. And so right. we are not necessarily that. Um, that does not mean that we're not, um, you know, potentially worthy idea or enterprise, um, but you can't be too disheartened um, I think you have to take all the feedback back and really consider it, um, but you can't be too disheartened either um, by you know a certain uh, pr- a particular viewpoint um, that's going to tell you well you know if you're not going to be a billion dollar business in um, you know the next year you know it's not a good idea because um, it's not a good idea for you and what you're looking for but it might mm-hmm. be for somebody else and so um, yeah we've you know we've experienced um, it's it's actually helped us really clarify. Um, both operationally and like philosophically, like what are we actually trying to do here? Um, what type of business is going to be, and is it something that we're personally interested in, kind of pursuing? Um, and yeah, to Yale's credit, we, um, you know, the the first uh, set of feedback was, um, you know, hey, you guys really need to work on this. It's like a the idea is a little shaky, which I think was the absolute uh, right call on their part. And you know, we actually went back and um, you know uh, put a lot of more time into thinking about what it is we wanted to do. Um, and then eventually, uh, you know, came back and, and um, had a lot more success. Um, and that sort of thing happens to us, you know, all the time. Where we'll, you know, uh, pitch a competition, um, you know, do well, but not, you know, not necessarily winning or to get running up or whatever. And then we'll come back and, you know, do better. And so, um, yeah, for anybody uh, who is who's experienced the same thing, I think it's all part of the journey. Right. You know, the, I mean, there's like so many, you know, stories out there about. Um, you know, people in business school whose ideas were rejected. I think the I can't remember his name. Fred from uh, maybe I'm getting his name wrong from from um, FedEx with his like big Fred thing. Smith. Yeah. Fred Smith. Yeah, I was going to give the wrong last name. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, he's, he like did his. I think it was at Harvard. He did his yeah. uh, master's thesis his, or something his, his like thesis that. On, yeah, yeah, and they were like, "This is never going to work." Right. You know, now he's planes, the ship packages. It's crazy. <laughs> It'll never work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well done. I like the delivery of that plane. <laughs> um, so, so you guys, so you guys enter this this um, the summer program at Yale, and what happens? Like, like what, what type of where are you beforehand? Is it still sort of like okay, this this idea is baking? Or are you guys like what 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 happens over that summer that that accelerates for you? Where where, where do you start? Where do you finish? And what do you and what do you get out of the program too? Yeah, so it's a. I mean, it's a fantastic program. It's a. It's a ten week long uh, kind of accelerator program. Uh, so there's, and it's across the university, which is great. So you get, um, you know, students from the School of Medicine, from School of Forestry, uh, et cetera, and they're undergrads doing apps, and everybody's doing a different thing, and it's it's kind of an amazing uh, experience. And you're also given a support network of um, alumni 
uh, in different industries who who have decided that they're going to volunteer their time to basically serve as a sort of informal advisory board, which is amazing. So they'll pair you with people who are you know experts in marketing, experts in manufacturing, uh, supply chain, etc. And so um, you really during those ten weeks take your business from a idea uh, to to a fully fledged business. And so you know I think um, when we were in our first year and kind of applying to grants and trying to go to class, it's 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 very difficult to kind of like take it to the next level. So those ten weeks were really pivotal for us um, in terms of really uh, actually building our supply chain and, and deciding which craftspeople are we actually going to work with? Where are we going to get our timber? Um, what products are we going to do first? Um, and so actually our original plan was to launch with a uh, kind of signature product. It was going to be a sitting to standing desk and we were going to launch through Kickstarter um, in the fall right after this summer program. Um, and one of the things we learned from that is that we basically built all of the infrastructure to be able to make this product and started to realize through the design process that we basically chose the most difficult furniture product we mm. possibly could have. Um, you know, to start with a product mm. that has moving parts um, is just very challenging to get it right um, and to do it well. And so while, you know, we're still developing that design and have lots of designs uh, for it, um, we also realized it probably wasn't actually the perfect product to start with. Um, there's just a lot that can go wrong, and it takes a long time to to perfect it. And so, you know, we we might not have launched for another year, um, and so we kind of took a different strategy, which is, um, yeah, let's start doing the the business model around other products that that are going to be great that we would have done after the Kickstarter. So we kind of reversed uh, what we were going to do, um, and we were able to launch um, just before Christmas of of uh, after that summer um, with with a first collection. So if I'm getting the model right, I just want to you know, maybe just to make sure we clarify for for our uh, for our listeners, the idea is you guys do design, and then um, you've got a flexible workforce of of of, uh, of craftsmen who can who can you know manufacture sort of like on demand a little bit and and uh, and fulfill orders. Is that the, is that the idea? Exactly. So so um, one of the things we're doing is in order to make things affordable, we had to change up the business model of how traditional retailers operate. So what we do is we we don't have showrooms. Um, everything's e-commerce, so that cuts out a big big cost center. Uh, but in addition, exactly, we um, we feature designs, we prototype, we put them on our site, and we let customers decide what, which pieces they love. So um, we actually build on demand in small batches with our network of craftspeople. And what we're able to do with that is because there's no risk or inventory risk, um, we're able to pass on savings very significantly to customers. Um, and then the last part is, you know, flat packing and shipping helps a lot with with that as well. So um, you do assemble your own pieces, but these are, you know, five to 10 minutes. Um, this is not like hour right. long, you know, headaches, looking through instructions, can't figure it out. It's very clear what to do. Um, so, so people are able to get handcrafted, beautiful, sustainable furniture for an affordable price. That said, I mean, so so you you guys you guys have started shipping stuff already. You know, there's mm -hmm. there there's a there's there are a variety of designs available online. Are you guys equipped to deal with like uh, you know a customer calling and saying, you know, like, I just can't figure out you know what goes into what? I mean, you know, you can you can idiot proof stuff only so much, and then there's an idiot like me who's like, you know, why is does this, oh I did this all backwards or something like that? Are you guys taking those calls yourself? Have you trained people? Are those calls coming in at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we t we go to great lengths to try to make it um, uh, a really good experience. And so, the you know, to Ben's point a little while ago, um, one of the things that we are curious about is why is the furniture buying experience, like, not any fun? It should be kind of fun, right? Because mm -hmm. you're, you're spending a lot of money potentially on a product you're going to have for a long time and, and might even become central to your daily routine. So it should be a good experience all the way through from the, you know, selection to the order, ordering to the arrival to the 
you know, assembly and then the function and the use. Um, and so we go to great lengths to try to make um, the designs not only aesthetically attractive, um, you know, built with real craft and quality, but also just easy to manage. So when it gets to your house, you can put it together quickly. Um, if there was a problem, um, and I'm sure, you know, it would, it, it, it might happen um, where somebody didn't know how to put it together or the instructions weren't clear enough for them. Um, yeah, they could contact us super easily. Um, you know, through the website, we have um, a lot of live chat on the website a lot too. So if there's troubleshooting, um, so if you have any issues, you know, we're a hundred percent ready to respond right. and kind of guide you through it. Yeah. I think at this point in the business, it's like you get, you get a better response than you ever get in your life. Like right. you take every piece and every customer <laughs> so personally, right. like, we're going to drive down to your place yeah. in Philly and fix this ourselves. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, oh, and to just to follow up on that, I mean, one of the questions that, you know, uh, um, uh, the investment community might ask, well, is that scalable? Um, and the answer to that is, is no. Um, but, you know, the, the famous quote, you know, do things that don't scale in the beginning. Um, we do take every piece, you know, extremely personally. Of course. Um, and so if, if you're not in love with it, if, if you're not having a great experience, you know, we want to know that and fix it for you. Talking about being in love with a piece of furniture. So you had a, we had a math teacher and a consultant who were suddenly doing other people's furniture design. You know, are you... Are you choosing the designs yourselves? Is, this a, is there a committee? Do you have a, an industrial designer working for you? I mean, how are you determining what you think someone else is going to want? Yeah, so it's um, we use a, a process that is actually uh, evolving, but it, we try to get inspiration from a variety of sources. Um, so a lot of the, the, the real philosophy behind you and Hobie um, is more of a material and, and craft and quality philosophy, which is we're not um, so tied to any sort of aesthetic design, you know, mid-modern or anything like that. Um, but what we don't want to compromise on is what type of materials, where they're coming from and how they're made. Um, and so what it does in a, in a larger sense is give us the flexibility um, that if a certain look or style is potentially popular, you know, we can do variations of it. Um, that being said, you know, Ben and I as individuals have, you know, our own aesthetic preferences. And so I think a lot of what we do is informed, um, you know, by our preferences, but then also um, just a, a very close group of um, advisors um, who are, you know, either in architecture or interior design. Um, some of them are very non-traditional. Uh, you know, they come from, a, you know, a background that's not at all related to you know designer furniture to get outside um you know input and so we we go to all these people um you know ask them what they think about certain designs we work with professional designers um you know quite a bit um, and so what you get is this kind of um you know mix of opinions um guided by you know our, our uh, very specific thoughts on how things should be put together and how they should be made um, and that's kind of what leads to the end product so and I would also add just that the, the fabricators are also involved in the full process. So as you're building a design, you don't want to build something that's not going to work. Mm. So they're they're constantly involved. There's lots of meetings between them, um, doing up 3D renderings and kind of seeing what's going to work um, from a cost perspective, but also just, um, yeah, just getting their input. I mean, they're master furniture makers, so they've, they've done a lot of designs themselves, too. And so, so just quick, sort of going back to the, the the timeline here. So you come into the you come into the summer, um, and you've accelerated in your accelerator, and uh, and now you got to go back and like go to go to school, right? I mean, how do you? How I, I feel like I, I don't know when you're when you're really into an idea, it's like everything else just seems like an obstacle. I don't I don't I don't know if you guys if you guys felt that way. I mean, obviously, business school is 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 
is is part of making your business better. Um, but I mean, were there times you're just like looking at that clock thing, like I can't wait to get out of here? And, and I mean, there had to have been. But I mean, just tell us about the experience of, of having this idea and, and still having another full time job of school in front of you. Yeah, I mean, I, I will definitely admit to sketching furniture quite a lot during class, <laughs> um, sketching up designs, which I showed Fred immediately afterwards. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's challenging. It's 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 very hard. Um, you're basically you're, you're kind of doing two full time jobs, which is somewhat impossible. You can't you can't do both of them extremely well, and it tends to be a little bit that the schoolwork uh, gets sidelined sometimes. Uh, although. What I felt is that they they actually complemented each other really well. So um, I always felt like classes were even better um, because of starting a business. So um, you might be taking a class on accounting or competitive strategy, and it, it's kind of you're you're talking about concepts that are a little bit they're interesting, but they're way more interesting when you're doing it in real time. So I always felt like I was coming out of a, a class with a million ideas and wanted to grab coffee with the professor to keep talking about it. Um, but at the same time, days are are you know very hectic. So you know. You'd go to class in the morning and then ship a product and then go meet with a crafter and then go to the lumber supplier, come back for a class and keep going. So it, it's uh, it was very busy days, um, but it was fun and exciting. And it, it was it was awesome to have our classmates around us who were really inspired and excited by it, too. Um, so one of the things we found is that. Um, yeah, everybody kind of wanted to like help us for free, um, and we we uh, started. Yeah, we we used them definitely, and so yeah, we'd have teams of groups that you know were going into marketing, and they wanted to do marketing for a startup. So um, it was kind of an amazing experience to have um, all these contacts with professors, uh, getting to work with our classmates on projects. Um, there were a million times where classmates were doing projects about our company. Um, Ooh, so yeah, class. it was just, or yeah, class or yeah. actual classes. So. Yeah, it was fun. And then Yale also has a lot of classes on entrepreneurship. So um, one of the things that's nice is, um, you know, there's you can get class credit for working on your startup, for example, or um, you can also take a class where each week a new entrepreneur comes in and you basically get to have a uh, interactive session, ask them questions. So it, I always felt like it was, it, you know, we tried to pick, pick classes that were valuable. You know, I'd take, a, you know, a class at the forestry school, if, if that made sense, for example. The you're talking about you know fulfilling orders and you know run, like running out to to get just to tend to the you know needs of the business. I mean, was there? Are you at the point now where you know you're you're I don't get maybe an email alert if you have a sale or something like that, and you're like, I have no idea how this guy in you know North Dakota you know found out about us and and we're shipping to that guy. Is that I mean are there are there moments like that where you're like. Wow, this thing is—it's—it's it's starting to take on a bit of a life of its own. Yeah, I think I think the the, the very exciting thing for us now is that um, uh, we know there's interest. Um, we've had you know some success um, in in producing, manufacturing, and shipping. Um, we know that we could do this, and this is you know we think it's possible for us to be the ones to do this, and so uh, we're starting to see a little bit of interest. Um, in kind of the wider world of people that we really have no connection to and that we're not even sure how they heard about us. Mm -hmm. um, and so for many reasons, I think uh, Hugo and Hobie is kind of on the cusp of um, just getting uh, much, a, a lot more momentum. Uh, and that's just really exciting to, to be, you know, kind of in that place. Uh, and that's for a variety of reasons with, you know, both kind of individual customers and then larger, you know, organizational customers that may want, you know, a collection design just for them. And so there's a, there just is a lot of opportunity and, um, you know, some of it is really starting to come to us without us, um, having to, having to look for it, which is great. 
you know, we talked earlier about kind of, you know, how nothing's guaranteed and 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 maybe some, you know, although you seem to both have very supportive spouses, um, you know, some implicit pressure. I mean, do you guys have very clear goals for where you want to be six months, a year? You guys are both pretty chill, uh, you know, like, a, a, <laughs> you know, do you have a timeline for when certain things need to happen or are you just taking it day to day? Yeah, I mean, I, we definitely have very specific milestones that both kind of drive our business and get us to push forward um, in very strategic ways. But we also, you know, one of one of the big things um, and one of the realities of startups is, yeah, you're trying to, you're also trying to get it to the point where it's sustainable, where you can start paying yourselves a salary. Um, and so, that's a that's a really you know big milestone that we're, that we're trying to get to, and it, it means ramping up sales quite a lot. Uh, but the other thing is we're we also know that this is a business that takes time. So. Um, as we're building it, um, every single collection and every single step in the chain gets better every single time from the packaging to the product to the website. Um, and it's really exciting. And, and so we do. We set milestones around each one of those um, kind of subsets that makes up our business and that makes it good. Um, so it is it is partially financial in that, you know, you got to get it to a place if it's if you're just doing the business and you can never get it to a place where um, it's sustainable and, you know, you're paying yourself a salary, then then I don't think you're doing it quite right. Um, but but you do have to also give it time. I think sometimes people maybe don't give it quite enough time and that they are onto something. Um, and they, yeah, they, they have this temptation to, you know, kind of, is this working? Is it not? Um, so yeah. So, I, I mean, I think the next year is a really important one for us because it's, um, yeah, it's the first year that we're out of school. We're doing it a hundred percent full time, even though we basically were before. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really exciting moment. And I think, um, yeah, we're, we're constantly, um, making things better and improving and, and, you know, working on milestones. And you guys, you guys talked earlier about how, you know, Hey, this maybe isn't like the classic, business that's attractive to a venture capitalist who wants to see like, you know, off the charts growth and probably a billion dollars in losses um, <laughs> before they'll invest. Uh, that's my own personal editorializing. Right. There. <laughs> right. Uh, anyone who listens to the show knows that I, I'm very pro bootstrapper. I mean, you guys are, right. you guys have, have, uh, have bootstrapped and relied on grants, which is it's still a form of, of bootstrapping, uh, you know, just trying to be creative with limited resources and not taking financing. What's the, I mean, do you guys have a plan to raise money or did you need to, or are you planning on just slow growth? Every piece is, uh, is a, is a small margin reinvested in the business. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you do things? Yeah. So I think, um, in, I think in the wider, like startup entrepreneurial culture, um, there's just a lot of emphasis on getting investment, uh, immediately. Um, you know, and that's really like the sign of success. You know, I know, um, uh, as uh, in the second year of the program, Ben and I would, um, you know, give advice to, um, you know, first year, uh, uh, you know, MBAs who were thinking of starting businesses. And so many times we would, when we would ask them, well, what's the first thing you need to do, you think you need to do just to get your business off the ground? They're like, you know, I need to raise a million dollars. And so then you're like, okay, Gosh. well, all right, let's say you did raise a million dollars. Like, what would you actually do with it? And, and oftentimes um, the answer is, it's not like super compelling of they, you have like a super clear plan of why you need that money. And so uh, for us, um, you know, I'll never forget when we were early days, like talking just about the idea of Hugo and Hobie, um, you know, somebody asked me, well, what's your exit plan? And I was like, exit plan? Like, I haven't, this is like a week old idea. I need to start, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? And so I think um, that kind of philosophy um, to, to build something, um, you know, to focus on execution um, and on, you know, customer service and product delivery um, first, and then let that drive 
um, what type of investment um, and which investors uh, you should go after is the most important thing for us. Um, grants and bootstrapping has been perfect. Uh, it allows us to really maintain control, um, you know, aesthetically um, and operationally. Um, yeah, totally. But though, if there is a if there is a need in the future, and maybe there will be, you know, to go to more uh, kind of classic institutional investors, angels or VCs, um, and it makes sense if we can find the right ones, and if it makes sense for them as well, where we are, com- we are, you know, we're comfortable with the idea that they will make their money back. Um, yeah, we would totally do that. Um, but I just don't think it, to a certain extent, it's even in our personalities to go out there and. Um, you know, try to raise a huge round and then be like, oh, yeah, and then make promises we, we potentially can't keep. And so right. um, we, you know, focus on the delivery first. And then afterwards, if it makes sense, we'll do that. Right. And but you get to be so it. much. Yeah, you get to be so much more creative, too, when you have a, a small amount of cash. You're so focused on how to use it. And so I just think e- even our business model, I don't think we ever would have arrived at it had we just gone with a. If you raised <clears> a bunch <throat> of money, you would just do it like the other guys do. So there, there's something incredibly powerful about having a small amount of cash that you have to be really laser focused on how you use it. And I think it's a, it makes businesses better ultimately. Absolutely. So you guys started in, you started in New Haven, I guess, um, because that's where the <laughs> idea started. Uh, but you know, you've graduated now and uh, I mean, you could go anywhere. Are you staying in, in New Haven? Is New Haven a great place to start a business? I think we have a tendency to think that you have to be in certain geographic regions to start a business. I assume there are advantages to being in New Haven. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a fantastic city and it's a, it's a great city to start a business and in part um, you know there's kind of obvious factors. One is cost of living. So um, having a city that's way cheaper to live in and you have more space uh, gives you more sort of runway to, to work with it. Um, I think there's uh, when you're not living in a shoebox, it, it makes it a lot easier. And and I, I think the other part is, you know, it's funny that you know our kind of founding story. I don't know that this business would have even started if we had been in a city like New York or San Francisco. We literally just didn't even have the space to to be able to build some initial prototypes. So um, yeah, there's huge advantages. And, and obviously, Yale has been one of the really big ones for us. So being uh, remaining in a city where our network is, is enormously huge for us. And, and we found that there's a lot of entrepreneurs actually that do stick around the area uh, and they want to support you and they want to make sure that, to help you. And so you're kind of in this perfect, uh, almost like breeding ground to get your business off the ground where everybody wants to help. And it's, it's a city that's um, excited about entrepreneurship. And it's not just like everybody's an entrepreneur. The, the city wants more of them. And um, New Haven in particular has um, a bunch of initiatives where, you know, they're, they're basically, you know, building entrepreneurial hubs where, um, you know, kind of these, you know, shared workspaces, et cetera. So they're really making an active effort to, to attract entrepreneurs because they see it as a big opportunity. So we, you know, it's been great and we've been loving it. Awesome guys. I mean, I look at this has been, this has been great. I really appreciate you. Yeah, this is the, for, for those who are listening, you know, Ben and Fred reached out to me or reached out to, reached out to Leandra who, who helps run the show and, and, uh, and uh, we were talking before about, you know, ask and you shall receive. If you're an entrepreneur, you got a great story, you know, reach out. People are, are eager to get involved and to help you. And, and to me, this wasn't even help. I, I just really enjoyed uh, learning about your story and, um, and I'm excited for you guys. And, and hopefully we can follow the Hugo and Hobie story and follow it to success and, you know, bring you guys back to talk about the evolution of the company. So thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. We, we really appreciate it. Yeah, Jeremy, it was a, it was a a pleasure and a privilege for us and uh, for anybody who's listening we um have our next collection coming out um in late september 
Uh, I'm sorry, late August, early September. And so uh, if anybody who's curious about what it is we do and, and has feedback, um, just drop us a line anytime through the website. We'd love to hear from you. So thank you so much for the time. It's perfect for me as a consumer because we're about to move. So I'll, I'll uh, my wife and I will go check it out and see if we can if we can furnish our home with some of your works. Thanks so much for being here, guys. Thank you. Thank you. really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 